comrades, you have been invited to join us this evening as a method of deprogramming. Many of you are here seeking a spectacle. We are not here to entertain you and we are not seeking followers. We are seeking collaborators. Tonight in this room, we are connected. We are each bodies, we are sexual, possess envy and curiosity, hate and compassion, selfishness and altruism. We are simply and beautifully human. We are powerful and wild, capable of creating entire worlds and equally as capable of destroying them. It was early in our collective history that those who are privileged to positions of power realized that to sustain their authority is to control the nature and mythology of man. Who taught you to be ashamed? Who taught you to apologize, to serve and confess, to ignore and repress, to carry on despite the injustices against who you are? Yet within this fiction, the path to liberation has been written. You're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The Fruit of Knowledge, featuring Jax Blackmore. Um, how's, um, how's Detroit? Uh, d- did you grow up there? Yeah, so I g- actually was born in Southfield, but my grandfather and my father owned a funeral home in Detroit. So I was spending a lot of time there with them. My sister and I had a, a little space set up in the room where they had caskets for display, and we would watch, like, cartoons while laying in the, the caskets and eating snacks. I I definitely had a a curiosity about death. I spent a lot of time uh, watching embalmers put makeup on on bodies, and I found it to be very relaxing and and peaceful to kind of watch the process of of kind of turning a body into something that resembled someone who who was alive and loved at one point. I found a lot of my understanding of the human body came from old textbooks about embalming and uh, disease that my, my dad had kept around. It changed my perspective a lot on our physical bodies and the ways in which we develop relationships with a physical body that will eventually just decay and, and be forgotten. I had a, a really serious fascination with religion in general when I was when I was young, like in elementary school. And it, maybe that had to do with my experience in watching different types of funerals happen and different ways of mourning. I got really into, you know, getting books about the occult and about Judaism and Christianity and different expressions of Buddhist and Muslim faith. My teachers were perplexed by this interest, and I think my my parents were as well. My parents were both pretty absent. 
my mom was a uh, social worker, and then, as I said, my my dad was a mortician. So uh, they were both very busy, and neither were very religious, with the exception that for my my father's business, uh, we attended church to kind of connect with the community that would eventually reserve and need funeral services later. So as a, as a networking opportunity? Essentially, yeah. We would always show up at the very end so we could at least shake everyone's hands and sneak in in the last pew. We are all part of the ultimate statistic. We all come from different places. It was this beautiful church that was supposed to look like an ark upside down, so it was all wood inside and had this this beautiful peak top and a massive concrete Christ that was elevated above the congregation. I have one sister and my parents made us dress up and it was very uncomfortable. Uh, something about it felt very institutional to me. Just, you know, it seemed like no, nothing about it was genuine <laughs> to me at, at the time and and it just felt um, like a kind of meaningless charade. There is this part at every service where you kind of shake the hands of your neighbor and you, I think you say, Christ be with you or something similar to that. It was very uncomfortable and nobody really wanted to do it. And I thought that was so strange because there's this kind of ritual of, of community, but it had no, you know, no meat to it, no, no truth. In part because a lot of the people that, that came to the church didn't seem to get along <laughs> and didn't seem to like each other. And, you know, there would be rumors going around about the neighbor and their family or, or who showed up or what they wore. And, and then I kind of, we stopped, we stopped going as much or I had the option not to go as I got older. Interestingly, I had a really difficult childhood, and my parents were often fighting in the house, and it was pretty brutal. And, uh, and one of the places that I found myself was in a contemporary church uh, when I first started high school. I think I was about 12 or 13. I started going to a very like hip church that was kind of held outside in fields and then in, in schools that didn't have a location. There were kids in my school that had like mohawks and they went to the church and I wanted to be their friends. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the name of the church? Uh, it's not around anymore, but it was a Wesleyan church. My mom always said that she thought it was a cult, uh, which I don't agree with, but I... It's like a more biblical-based approach. The idea is that if, you know, the words of the Bible are, are true, no matter what, it's just kind of our interpretation of them. But to say that, you know, the idea that some of the Bible is just a story or, or just not true is offensive to people of the Wesleyan faith. And so I, I found myself there because I was looking for a place to escape, to get out of the house. It was one of the only ways I could get away. I think my initial reaction was one of feeling um, accepted. And I think that feeling accepted and cared about is really important when you are a young teenager. 
I really tried to go deep in understanding this Christian worldview and philosophy and thought that, you know, Jesus was all-knowing, omnipotent character that had my best interest in mind. And, and I had to have a, you know, relationship with, uh, with him. And I think that I, in earnest, when I was about 14, tried really hard to do that. And I failed, <laughs> I think. Uh, you know, I, I tried to pray, you know, every night. And my parents would say, you know, you're in a cult and we're not into seeing me really try to do that. And I would read the Bible and I would, you know, I read books about becoming a godly woman or a young woman who had good values and would save herself for marriage. And I think that as I started to go deep into what that really meant to live as a Christian, I started to feel very bad about myself. Things really shifted for me away from feeling comfortable in a community that I thought was taking care of me to feeling like a failure and feeling very ashamed. And in what ways did you feel like you were a failure? I mean, I was just like any teenager, very lustful. I remember having attending a sermon that was about how masturbation was was a sin and that you have to refrain, which was a big problem for me as a teenager. I was very curious about sex at the time, and I think that was a huge sticking point. I also had some queer friends growing up, and I was troubled by the kind of demonization of gay people. All of these things, and a lot of it had to do with sexuality, to, to be honest, really felt uncomfortable to me. And was told often that I should pray if I feel like defiling my body with sex, that I should should pray for forgiveness and pray for guidance. And did you? I did. I, I certainly did. I felt very bad about myself, I think. I felt like I could only be redeemed through prayer and that inherently I was a bad person and weak because of being subjected to worldly sins. I also, I think, experienced and went into a very serious period of my life where I became severely depressed and suicidal. Part of it was because of my home life, but I think also I, I was looking to a community of people that were supposedly there to help me, who made me feel ashamed of myself, who made me feel like I didn't have control over my own life, who made me feel like I was imperfect. I attended a series of sermons on demons and possession. They read from a text that described people who were, you know, under the influence of demons. And some of the characteristics they described were things such as being a rebellious woman who defied the uh, men in their life. Also, another one was sleeping with dead people, which I had taken lots of naps in rooms with dead people <laughs> growing up. So that felt really weird to me. I just felt like all this description of being possessed by demons and under the influence of the devil resonated with me much more than being a Christian. The church teaches that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and they kind of existed in paradise and bliss and complete ignorance of any pain in the world and were forbidden from accessing that information by God. They were under kind of a fascist regime, <laughs> unable to know truth and unable to know the depth of reality until Eve was quote unquote tempted or offered 
the choice to, to know these truths. She, throughout history, has been the epitome of sin for wanting to know the truth. And I think there's something telling when what is deemed the most harmful is, is enlightenment. We talk about the devil as this great sense of temptation, somebody that offered humanity choice, who offered, you know, Adam and Eve knowledge, who offered Jesus in the, in the desert water. It starts to seem like the devil is actually much more reasonable. <laughs> and you read the story, I think it's Abraham who's asked to sacrifice his son. When I look on this boy, I see goodness. I see your promise fulfilled. What a moral dilemma that is. How do you reckon with murdering your own child to please God? And where is the, the moral truth in that? How can I put an end to such innocence? There is a clear moral truth. It's don't murder your child. The most reasonable, rational, natural choice always comes back to the devil. Started to realize that Satan, Satanism and, and, and the, the values that were decried by the church as something that would bring the fall of humanity was actually quite the opposite. And I started to call myself a Satanist shortly after. When I was a young man, my father took me to a place in central Ohio where he showed me a satanic church. There, the windows were blacked out. The walls were painted black within. There were demonic signs on the interior, on the walls. Satanic priests wore hooded robes. There are people who define themselves as theistic Satanists, so those are people who believe in a literal devil and a supernatural being they use the satanic Bible. who meddles with our affairs here on Earth. Weird things to the point of blood being used for communion. But I hate to tell you this, that's not really his goal for your life. Non-theistic Satanists, which is the, the realm that I fall into, I believe in Satan as a uh, metaphorical figure representing enlightenment and rebellion. See, many of us don't do what we do because Satan wants us to. We do it because we want to. Nobody here says, you know, I think I'll get drunk for Satan. No, you get drunk for you. For me as a Satanist, I fundamentally believe that my humanity he wants you to do what you want. is natural, Say what you want. is normal, is Take what you want. powerful Take what you want. and something to be embraced. You do what you do because you want to do it. First rituals, public rituals that 
I wrote was um, in a loft warehouse in Detroit. Tonight, we acknowledge your courage and value your trust in us. When people entered the room, we marked their foreheads with an X as a rite of passage. This building is ours. You have entered a consecrated space. We had a massive display of fruit and sweets you know, four-foot sculpture of a phallic image, essentially a, a huge ice penis next to a room showing a goat giving birth on repeat and church pews to transform a space into a zone where we controlled the aesthetic and, and created the kind of church where we wanted to worship. Let us feel I spoke at a podium as a pastor would, brought up participants as in a traditional religious ceremony at a Christian church, you might have different priests. In this case, they were nude participants who choked visibly on gallons of wine. Who taught you to be ashamed? Who taught you to be embarrassed by your sexuality? We talked a lot in the ritual about how Wine is symbolic of the blood of Christ and how the blood of Christ is, is suffocating us and, and we are drowning in this moral rhetoric which is harming us and we, we literally can't breathe because of this dominance and influence over our bodies and our minds. Your body is your power and it is a weapon. Near the end of the ritual, the wine glasses are smashed and the nude performers engage in, in sexual acts and dancing ensues as a celebratory form of ritual resistance. religion in America, the Satanic Temple is now designated as an official church. The IRS gave it tax-exempt status like many religious institutions in America. The Satanic Temple was founded about six years ago. The Satanic Temple was founded by a group of men who wanted to create a satire group to be litigious. It's a question of First Amendment rights here at the state capitol tonight after a Satanist group announced it will erect its own holiday display just steps away from the capitol Christmas tree. Is it really just a way to troll Christianity? No, I mean, that that can be part of the fun, but it's certainly only just, just part of it. At the time, right before I joined, I was writing a blog called Raw Pussy, and I was really into radical taboo thinkers and artists challenging these oppressive norms. And so I reached out and realized that my perception of Satan at the time closely aligned with their values of being political. Jax Blackmore is the founder of the Detroit chapter of the Satanic Temple. On the line with us right now. Hello, Jax. Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for coming on. I took on organizing in defense of gay rights and defense of abortion. I would say that we employ radical political theater to draw attention to the absurdity of the pro-life movement. You know, getting together with groups of people and saying this, this particular issue is, is wrong. How can we challenge this? 
I attended a gay rights rock against racism event that a friends of mine had organized in a, in a local church group came out and protested. A man called me a whore and spit on me. I think at the time I had made a comment that if he spat on my asshole, it would have felt better. He didn't know what to say, <laughs> and it felt really good. To me, it was quite funny because it it's such a small, taboo reference to sex that made someone so uncomfortable. And I realized that what they were trying to do is to make us feel ashamed of our sexuality. But in reality, they were so afraid of their own. Modern Satanism has been historically over the last 30 years, dictated and controlled, and the figureheads have all been men. And you see that in the subculture as well, in, in heavy metal music and black metal music, in the Temple of Set, the Church of Satan. These are all groups run by men. Women tend to participate in ways that lend themselves to being a prop, essentially naked, acting as altarpieces. All the decision-making was made primarily by men or by maybe a group of women that were sleeping with men. You know, all the money was managed and donations were managed by men, uh, which I think really replicates a power structure of sexism that we see in many different organizations, but is certainly disappointing in one that I think should oppose kind of these traditional structures perpetuated by the church. I have a, a position of abolition and revolution, and the Satanic Temple has a position of reform. The Satanic Temple is very much invested in engaging in lawsuits to forward their political mission, and I was very much interested in empowering the freaks on the street. And because of that, we really started to, to be at odds with one another. They took issue with a, a political performance that I did on my own terms, where, uh, you know, I think that the point that they called out was that I said presidents should be executed. I had stepped down as a chapter head in Detroit, but I still had a strong community of people that I was working with as an artist in Detroit, and we wanted to engage in a, in a ritual focused on political rebellion and solidarity. We occupy this space in this unused warehouse in the middle of Detroit that was unheated. And it was the middle of a massive snowstorm, the biggest snowstorm of the year. After centuries of biblical patriarchal dominance, the annihilation of native and diverse cultures, the propagation of racism and homophobia, we owe our oppressors. We owe them hostility, inextinguishable justice, and uncompromising destruction. A couple hundred people showed up, which was really amazing considering the weather and the fact that it was freezing cold. We literally smashed an entire set of lights that lit up to look like prison bars. They have built a system that grinds us down and they tell us to swallow our grief and our rage in the name of And pointed out that we actually have the right to rebel and to challenge these injustices through creative means. We are the model. Who 
protest. Who taught you how to get mad? Who taught you how to speak up? Because we are going to disrupt, distort, destroy, and reclaim, resist, and rebuild. We are going to storm press conferences, kidnap an executive, release snakes in the governor's mansion, execute the president. Hail Satan! This was an action that was seen as a threat to TST's, it could be a liability to TST legally, which I disagree with. And I also think is a very dangerous place to be because if you aren't breaking the law, then I certainly don't think that you should step any further back from that line out of fear that you might get in trouble for something that you're legally allowed to do. Um. So, so one thing you did say, as I, as I recall, you did say um, execute the president, not execute presidents generally. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think that something that I hope people understand is that every single line and word in a ritual has been meticulously chosen and thought about throughout the writing process. If anybody who, who knows me or knows my philosophy or is, has followed my work should know, at least I hope, that I don't have a political problem with Donald Trump specifically, but that I think that the office of the presidency should be abolished. I don't take issue with one particular president because I'm a liberal or something. I oppose the entire structure. And so there's a reason why in that ritual I did not say President Trump. A very specific reason. Because it doesn't just end with President Trump. It ends when we change the entire structure of our political system. Even saying, execute the president, there's nothing wrong with that. Legally, in fact, you have to make a very specific threat on an individual that could have possible real ramifications for it to be considered a legal threat. This is not a legal threat. We have the right to say, execute the president. More people should maybe start saying it because we should not be afraid of challenging people in power or even making them afraid, especially since people like President Trump have engaged in violent speech against the people. The question really is, why is the violent rhetoric and violent speech that is utilized by the President of the United States or particular politicians somehow deemed appropriate and legal, but when the people speak out against those individuals is it deemed something so unacceptable that we have to silence it? We must engage in so-called radical speech if it is the truth. If people are offended by the images of, of nudity and choking on wine, I would say that I'm equally as disturbed and bothered by men holding bread over an altar and drinking literal wine that they claim has been turned into the blood of Christ or the body of Christ, engaging in cannibalism and, and doing so on the platform that people like me are evil. The idea that you should confess your sins in a private room with a man who has a high likelihood of being a sexual offender is outrageous to me. 
Like, who gets to determine what is violent and who determines what is just and right? Of course, you know, when you have the police executing citizens in the street, it's still taboo to somehow say that that's wrong. That's very frightening, because we should be able to say that's wrong. It's very personal to me, the fact that people in positions of power, people who represent me in the government, people who are in charge of our justice system, people who educate us, believe that because of my lifestyle and by the very nature of, of who I am, am evil, sinful, deserve to be punished for an eternity, is not only offensive, but it's, it's personal. Practicing independence from that is liberation, personal liberation and political liberation. And to me, you do need both. I can't believe it only just sort of occurred to me now, but you know, I'm, I'm struggling to think of another religious movement that um, is based in opposition to another religion, if that makes sense. It almost strikes me as like, if, if Christianity were to disappear tomorrow, it seems like Satanism would, would go away too. Even if a lot of the fundamental ideas obviously would still remain, you know, the trappings seem to be like irrevocably tied to Christianity. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, I, I've heard people ask this question before and, and question the kind of foundation of this belief as being tied to the thing that it opposes. But I, I do think that the amount of power that the Christian church has is, is undeniable and has been for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is kind of a futile act to pretend or to imagine a world without it. Uh, because the reality is that our political and cultural landscape has been and continues to be shaped by the worldview of the church. To ignore the power of the Christian church is to give it continued power, to say, well, I don't believe in that, so it doesn't apply to me. But it actually does apply to to all of us. I, I mean, to me, it wasn't enough just to say, I don't believe in supernaturalism, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the values of the church. Because to do that means to be a Satanist in the eyes of the church. And so instead of rejecting that, I decided that it felt much more natural to me to, to own it. It amuses me that I am the embodiment of what they fear. It seems so absurd because I'm just a normal person. And I think this is the part where they would say that that's the devil being deceptive. Satan, to me, represents the inherent nuances of our humanity that has been reduced to simplistic binaries by people in power to control and manipulate the public. So to embrace those nuances in our humanity, to embrace the complicated nature of ourselves is to more fully understand what it means to be human and to understand our relationship to power and to each other. And to ultimately accept the nature of the rebel as described by the church as a defining feature of ourselves. At one time, Lucifer was an archangel in heaven. He was there with God. But suddenly something began to happen. 
the devil has been described time and time again as the, the ultimate rebel, the deceiver. Calling people to question the superiority of God. And to me, that is a positive characteristic about the devil and um, deserves to be celebrated rather than ignored. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode featured Jex Blackmore and was produced by Nikki Stein and Stephen Jackson. Stephen also did the sound design with help from Nate Jackson. Special thanks also to Penny Lane, who provided a recording of one of Jex's performances. Her documentary, Hail Satan, goes into way more depth about the activities of the Satanic Temple, and it's a fantastic watch. Check it out. For more information about the music we feature on the show, stunning episode art, and transcripts, please visit our website, loveandradio.org. Love and Radio is an independent project and a labor of love and radio, and made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. With extra special thanks to Ali Mothra Perry, Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leake, Jason V, Sam Huffman, Sandra Schroeder, and Edging Candy Duft. If you want to pitch in as well, please consider becoming a member yourself by going to loveandradio.org slash member. I'm Nicholas Sardine Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Our final track is Inna by Satomi McGay. Thanks for listening. Susan.